Well, we continue in our Mark series this morning, and yes, once again, we are in chapter 10. So go ahead, grab those Bibles, have them open in front of you. Uh, Just before we begin, a a note for next week. Uh, Wayne Sutton, the senior pastor of Crubbers Christian Centre, will be continuing our Mark series and be preaching on the final section of Mark chapter 10. We're grateful that Wayne has agreed to uh, preach next week, and we do pray that we'll be blessed by the teaching of God's word next week. Uh, Following that, I'll be able to then launch into Mark chapter 11 as we continue our Mark series. Now, last week we considered the practicalities of discipleship, namely that we are to give up all things for the sake of the kingdom of God. What we're going to see today is that went in one ear of the disciples and then straight out the other. Time and time again, Jesus declared what would come to pass and therefore what faithful discipleship looks like. And time and time again, the disciples could not grasp the magnitude of the situation and instead focused on what they would get rather than on the giver himself. What I hope to show is that we are plagued in the church as Christians right now by the same thing. We have the word of God before us, the word that is entirely true, the word that we are called to submit to. However, sadly, it often goes in one ear and then straight out the other. You see, we are not to focus on what we get, but we are to focus on the giver himself. We're to be entirely devoted to Jesus with every part of our being. For as it says in Hebrews 12 from verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, we are to run our race focused on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's not about what we get, but it's about the giver. It's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom and how that will expand and be in all of its glory. Now, we are going to learn the mistakes or learn from the mistakes of the disciples today. However, we first must consider what Jesus described would come to pass, which is the very foundation of discipleship that Jesus gave his life for us, and therefore we are called to give our lives for Jesus. And so we're going to begin chapter 10, and we're going to begin from verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happen, what will happen to him. The scene is set. The disciples and Jesus are now heading to Jerusalem. Jesus walking ahead of his disciples and potentially what we get here, a small crowd who follow. Now we could see this in two different ways. It was a fairly common practice for rabbis to walk ahead of a group of people. They were seen as individuals to lead and therefore individuals to follow. The other reason though we could see Jesus walking ahead of his disciples I think is more plausible that Jesus was focused on what will come to pass in Jerusalem. He was heading to the cross. He was walking with determination and focus. Now for a moment here, recognise two aspects. Firstly, the isolation of Jesus. He is separate for he is the only one that understood what was about to come. He was separate for he was the only one that could do what was about to come. 
It was a lonely journey to make, yet one that showed great courage. Do you notice that? That Jesus is walking to his death. He knows it, yet he still walks. More than that, he walks ahead, ready and determined to obey the Father. And we get a hint to this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was focused on what he was about to do, which was he was going to give his life as a sacrificial lamb for the sake of sinners. Following behind, the disciples look to Jesus and are both amazed and afraid. And it's unlikely that they were afraid of a hostile Jerusalem or memory of the previous predictions that Jesus had made. I think it's more likely they were afraid and amazed in the demeanour of Jesus, the quiet focus, the sadness of knowing what is about to happen, the change from active ministry among the people to walking toward the moment of crucifixion. Something in the behaviour of Jesus caused both awe and fear. And as we have seen in several times in our Mark study, at this precise moment, Jesus uses this moment to provide a unique teaching moment for the disciples. Verse 33. See, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the most clear and fullest warning that Jesus gives as to what will come to pass. It is now the third time that Jesus explicitly states what will happen to the Messiah. Jesus will be given over to the religious leaders, who in turn will hand Jesus over to the Gentiles, by which he is meaning the Roman Empire, who will give him the cruelest punishment known to mankind. Jesus will be verbally abused, he will be physically attacked, and ultimately he will lose his life through the act of crucifixion. Yet this wouldn't be the end of the Messiah. For three days later, and I want you to note that detail right here before it happens, three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, when I read this statement, what takes me aback is that the disciples would have remembered these statements as they watched Jesus being crucified. They would have remembered the punishment that Jesus had described. Yet why didn't they remember the victory? After Jesus died, they all ran around with no clue of what to do next. Yet here Jesus explicitly and clearly states that after three days, Jesus would return. Yet the disciples only remembered the punishment, they didn't remember the victory. Now I know the disciples are not British, but, but I think this is a very British response, isn't it? Remember the dreadful acts and forget about the victory. But we must never forget about the victory. We must never forget that Jesus did not lose. He won against sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember not to be like the disciples. Don't just remember the dreadful stuff. Remember the victory. Jesus, yes, went to a cruel death. Yes, he was punished. Yes, he was flogged. Yes, that was horrible. But he won. He rose again three days later, beating sin, beating death and putting Satan into submission. And now we celebrate a risen Lord Jesus 
not just on Easter Sunday, but every day of the year. As we build towards Christmas in the next few weeks, this is the victory that we, that we remember, that Jesus was born to go to the cross so that he would rise from the dead and so he would be a victorious Lord and Saviour over all things. We must not be like the disciples. We must remember the victory that is in Jesus. Uh, let's continue in our passage, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, if your leader, your friend, even your saviour had told you that in a few days' time they would be cruelly crucified, would you respond like these two disciples? I highly doubt it. In Matthew 20, 20, we get a little bit more detail and it seems that James and John approached Jesus along with their mother, Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something. Now, it could be that Mark is trying to save these two sons of Zebedee the embarrassment, or it could have been seen uh, that Mark was just trying to get to the point. You know, often we've seen this, that he gets right straight away to the point and he doesn't want extra details in his gospel account. But either way, what is clear, a request was being made. However, rather than make that request straight away, they asked for a blank check for Jesus to promise to do whatever they asked him to do. Now, not even kings did this. Do you remember Herod back in Mark 6 when he promised half of his kingdom? Kings didn't even promise more than half. Nobody ever gave a blank check to the request that would be unknown. Yet these brothers think that they have the right to ask in this way. Now, remember, John is the one who stopped others doing ministry in the name of Jesus. These brothers were known to be hot-headed and ambitious in their position. And it seems clearly from Matthew's gospel that they inherited this from their mother. Just look at verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus graciously allows them to make their request. Remember, Jesus knows all things, so he would have known what was about to be asked. Yet he allowed them to ask it for he would show them and teach them where their hearts truly were. And their request, James and John, to sit at the right and left-hand side of Jesus in his glory. What a request, what an opportunity grab. It wasn't that they wanted to be especially close to Jesus, rather they wanted positions of grandeur. They wanted to be elevated above everyone else. And their request came from ambition, not from loyalty. Remember, many had a wrong view of the Messiahship. They thought the Messiah would defeat political enemies and rule the land. But it seems James and John wanted to be rulers alongside Jesus, both at the right and left-hand side. Clearly, these two don't feel they have had enough recognition. Sure, they're two of the 12 disciples. They're even two of the three disciples that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yet these brothers do not see that as enough. They wanted to be at the right and left-hand side of Jesus in his glory. Now, some may think I'm being overly harsh. Is ambition not good? Certainly, we teach that to our children to, to keep pushing forwards. Well, consider Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. These brothers sought to exalt themselves, and God's word is clear. They will be humbled. Verse 38. 
Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The irony of this request from the disciples is that those who would take the left and right hand side of Jesus in his glory were two criminals who would be crucified by the sides of Jesus. One of whom is in glory, for he didn't exalt himself, rather he humbled himself before Jesus. The disciples clearly didn't know what they were asking. Now to understand the response of Jesus, we need to bring in some Old Testament context. For the cup that Jesus talks about is a symbol in the Old Testament of both joy and suffering. Consider Psalm 23 verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Great blessing flows into the cup. Yet consider Isaiah 51 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This cup also is the wrath of God. So it's both blessing and both wrath. To be able to understand which one Jesus is referring to, we also need to bring in the Old Testament context of baptism which was a sign of purification, the plunging into water, the cleansing under the water, and then the lifting out clean and purified. And when you put these two things together, what Jesus is saying that his glory, this element that the disciples want to be a part of, consists of God's wrath being poured out in the most awful way for the sake of mankind. Do you recognise that, that, that Jesus is saying, can you truly take this on? Can you truly do that? Can you truly suffer in the way that I will suffer? Is that what you actually want? To have the entire of God's wrath poured upon you so that you are cleansed and purified as a living sacrifice? Because that's what Jesus is called to. His glory is not political fame. His glory is this humility in giving his life for the sake of sinners. And the question comes from Jesus. Do you think you can do that? Well, verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Is their reply arrogance? Is it a softened heart of loyalty? We're certainly not told, but what we are told is that these disciples will indeed suffer for Jesus. They will face persecution and ultimately they will face martyrdom. For the follower of Jesus not only sacrifices all for him, but is willing to endure all for him. And you can't haggle this cost of discipleship. You can't get a better deal, a little less persecution, a little less giving away. You can't haggle discipleship. There is no better deal here. You must be willing to sacrifice and endure as a humble child of God. And it's in this humility that you then gain this wonderful eternal blessing. Even so, to be able to be exalted to the side of Jesus is not for Jesus to give. For it is the Father who has already decided who would take those positions. Jesus shows here great humility. He is being obedient to the Father's will, even obedient to the point of death. And that is our example of the cost of discipleship. Verse 41. 
And when they turned, heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And once again, the disciples pick up on entirely the wrong thing. It goes in one ear and straight out the other. They should have been paying attention to Jesus and the call and cost of discipleship. But no, they were angry at James and John. For the ten wanted better position and James and John were too opportunistic for their liking. Cole, a theologian, said, A man's character is shown by what provokes the strongest reaction. What does this tell us about the disciples? They were selfish, ego-driven individuals who were looking out for themselves rather than being devoted to King Jesus. Do you see the behaviour here in the disciples? Jesus is constantly patient with them. He doesn't sigh in exasperation, but the disciples just seem to get it wrong every single time. But instead of Jesus rebuking them, he once again teaches them how they should be responding. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now there are two types of leadership here. The world's leadership is all about lording it over being the one that is all-powerful, who makes the decisions. And if anyone doesn't like it, well, they can just jog on. The world's leadership is about prestige and position. It's about showing off power, showing off what you can wield, showing your abilities. Yet those who are among the children of God will not and cannot behave like this. Matthew Henry states, To be good is better than looking good. The greatest must be a servant. The first must be slave to all. Now, do you remember last week in God's economy, the one who gives is the one who is blessed? Well, once again, in God's economy, the one who leads is the one who serves. And the greatest example of all is in Jesus himself. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come from heaven to lord it over the people. He came to serve the Father's will. He didn't come as some political warrior. He came as one who would die. And the disciples just didn't get it. They wanted power and prestige. Yet Jesus tells them the greatest good that they can do is to follow his example, to serve, to sacrifice and to endure. This moment that Jesus has with his disciples is monumental for us. It shows us what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. It shows us that the blind spots that we have to power and position. It shows us how we are to live out our lives as children of God. And we can learn much from the mistakes of the disciples in today's passage. And certainly I believe these lessons are vital for God honouring discipleship. And so the first thing I think we can learn is this, loyalty over ambition, loyalty over ambition. What do you live for? Are you like the disciples and live for yourself? If so, what is your life characterised by what you want from it? Whether that be a better job, success in business or even popularity, your ambition is driving you to get what you want. 
Yet Jesus isn't interested in disciples like this. Jesus is looking for loyalty. Ambition will make you run away from persecution. Loyalty will make you stand your ground for Jesus. Ambition will take you the way of popularity, but loyalty will seek the bettering of others rather than yourself. Ambition will make you water down the gospel and God's word, for then you will gain more. Yet loyalty is standing rock solid on the word of God, refusing to budge for anyone. And do you remember what I said at the beginning of this sermon? What plagues us is it goes in one ear and straight out the other. The Lord time and time again has said loyalty to his word, to his name, to his kingdom is what he seeks, not worldly ambition. As a disciple, we are to be like Paul and in his words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. We know its power for salvation. We've seen its transformation power in our life and we are to be loyal to that gospel. We are to be loyal to Jesus, never ashamed, never watering it down, never changing it, not seeking popularity, position or prestige, but seeking Jesus just as he sought Jerusalem and walked ahead of the disciples, just as he turned his face to the cross where he would be punished and would be killed. We are to turn our face to loyalty to Jesus, never ashamed of the gospel and completely unwilling to seek the things of this world. The second lesson we can get is servitude rather than ruling. Servitude rather than ruling. One of the greatest tragedies in the church today is that too many want position of authority and not enough people want position of being a servant. Too many want to be seen, to be heard, to be recognised, with too few seeking to serve in the background, sleeves rolled up, ready to do the master's will. And Jesus is the greatest example of this. Philippians 2.8 and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the glorious creator God. He was before all things. He sustains all things. He will be after all things. He had every right to come in all glory, position, power, prestige, and get every recognition, but he didn't. He came as a humble servant to the point of death. And so as they say, here is where the rubber hits the road. The genuine believer in Christ does not seek the limelight. Rather, they seek to do what the master needs them to do. At Lincoln Baptist, we are continually in need of volunteers for our lift breakfast and volunteers even to do the job of sleep, sweeping up the leaves in the car park so nobody falls over. We have a dozen people who are without internet and right now they are feeling alone. Who is calling them? We have a dozen people that are living alone and really struggling while being alone in lockdown. Who is checking up on them? Who is buying shopping for them? You don't need a leadership approval. You don't even need a well-planned out structure. You simply need to recognise that if you are in Jesus and Jesus is being willing to humble himself to the point of death, then we should be willing to serve in the gaps. Don't just hear me today. Don't just see this as, oh, well, yeah, Jesus is a good example. 
Do something different this week. Be the church. Serve God in the quiet, in the background where recognition isn't sought. Be the person that sweeps up the leaves. Be the person that wakes up at six in the morning and helps the rough sleepers of Lincoln. Be the person that buys the shopping for the individual that is feeling alone so you can have a chat with them. Be the person that phones those without internet, those dozen people that that don't have online church every week. Be the person that is alongside them. And don't toot your trumpet looking for recognition because your master sees what you're doing and he rewards the humble service that you give. Don't let it go in one ear and straight out the other. Be a servant of Christ. Thirdly, I think we can learn this. Good rather than looking good. Good rather than looking good. Oh, the disciples, well, they looked good. They were the selected 12 that got to follow Jesus. Yet clearly through their arguments of who was the greatest and the ambition trumping loyalty, they were just simply not good. Goodness is not measured by how you look on the outside. It is measured by how your heart looks. Do you have a heart for Christ? Do you have a heart for the lost? Does it pain you that so many are going to hell without the gospel? Do you magnify the Lord for all he's done in your life? Do you devote every breath to the one that sustains every breath? Do you serve the master's will? Stop spending your life trying to get a perfect looking life with a following and a popularity and the right house, the right car, the right whatever you think will make you look good. For goodness is not measured in how you look, but is what is going on in your heart. It's so clear here that the disciples had a heart of ambition and a heart of position. And it's also so clear that Jesus had a heart of love, service and sacrifice. We are to be like Jesus, not like the disciples. Fourth and finally, I think we can learn this. Enduring for the prize. Enduring for the prize. At times are hard. That is true. Trials are plenty. Everywhere we look things feel strained and stressed. Christians are being persecuted. Christians are being told to put up and shut up. For many, it is just too much to handle. Yet Jesus says here that we are to endure. For in the end, there is an eternal reward for all those who have faithfully suffered in the name of Jesus. You see, we don't look to this world for our reward. We don't look to position and popularity and and we don't look to where John and James, the sons of Zebedee, the, the sons of thunder look to. We look to eternity and there Jesus has secured for us an eternal reward and so we endure. We endure the name calling. We endure the trials. We endure the persecution. We endure the grumpiness. We endure it all for the sake of our eternal reward reward. And so today, I want to sum all of this up in one single quote. And I'll finish with this from Alistair Begg. The only true conqueror who shall be crowned in the end is he who continues until war's trumpet is blown no more. Christian, wear your shield close to your armour and cry earnestly to God that by his spirit you may endure to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the disciples. They seem to get so many things wrong, but we are learning from their mistakes. Father, let us not be a people of ambition, but a people that are loyal. Father, let us not concentrate on looking good, but let us be good.
Father, let us endure and serve rather than seeking the limelight. We pray that you would be well pleased in our offering and sacrifice, that we would live for you and that by living for you, many would look upon our lives and just wonder who this Jesus is and what a piece of him. And Father, we pray that many would come to know you as Lord and Saviour. And as, as we build towards Christmas in a few weeks, Father, we pray that we're not all about the, the looking of Christmas, but we are all about the heart of Christmas, that we will be a, a heart-focused people. And Father, we praise you for Jesus. For as he said, he went, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was killed. And he did it all for us. Father, we praise you for Jesus. And in his precious name we pray. Amen.